0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast and the Future Tech Health Podcast. And I have uh, Eric Prasser. He's an assistant professor in the UCSF Department of Psychiatry. He's also a faculty member in the Health Psychology Postdoctoral Program at the Robert Wood Johnson um, Health and Society Postdoctoral Scholars Program. And uh, he works with um, the UCSF Center for Obesity Assessment, Study, and Treatment. So, uh, Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about uh, your work. What what got you interested in obesity and what do you do in regards to it? So, I, you know, so my work is is
1: primarily in the context of sleep and stress and how it affects health. And so, you know, one of the ways in which that does that is it it can impact kind of whether we gain weight or not. Um, but a lot of the work that we do is really focused on trying to understand some of the underlying biological pathways through which kind of health behaviors, particularly sleep and kind of our daily lives um, affect our health, and so we do a lot of work both in the lab and in the field, um, studying those things as well as kind of doing a deep dive into a lot of the the biological mechanisms uh, one in one in particular is we're really interested into in markers of, of cellular aging and trying to understand how. How we live our lives um, seem to accelerate uh, the pace at which
0: we age. All right. So, in terms of uh, aging, have you identified what you think are um, accelerants of aging? You know, maybe the most, uh, the strongest accelerants?
1: Well, I mean, so of, of biological age, I mean, the best predictor of disease risk is chronological age, right? As we get older, we tend to get, um, you know, at greater and greater risk. But it turns out that. If you look at, say, uh, a 65-year-old, um, their risk varies a lot, and we're trying to understand some of the biological signals that that happen to account for this difference. And so, one of the ones that we focus a lot on uh, is uh, telomeres. So, telomeres are on the the ends of chromosomes. Uh, they cap mm. the DNA, and uh, as your cells divide, specifically, we focus on immune cells. As they divide, those telomeres get shorter and shorter. And if they get to a critical shortness, um, they uh, send the cell into either um, apoptosis, so cell death, or um, they can turn into a senescent cell. And those senescent cells kind of um, accumulate as we age, but they accumulate at different rates for different people. And those cells become very inflammatory, meaning that they release kind of these proteins that a lead to inflammation, which we know seems to be a central driving pathway for a lot of the chronic diseases of our population. And right. um, you know, while there are a lot of things that contribute to that, you know, as a I'm a clinical health psychologist, and so the the thing that that we focus on are kind of these these factors in our world, like you know, kind of people that are under chronic stress, for instance. So we do a lot of work studying um, caregivers, uh, so people that care for loved ones with say with dementia or parents of kids with autism. um, Those people are under these chronic burdens and it's there that we see relative to people that don't carry that same level of stress uh, that a a lot of these biological processes are um, sped up or exaggerated so
0: that it contributes to uh, aging at the cellular level. Well, what do you see being sped up? I mean, what constitutes aging at the cellular level? Just uh, telomere shortening faster than normal? I mean, what else? I would bet it's a whole host of
1: things. Yeah, so there are a lot of different things that that uh, you know you can look at. I mean, one of them that we focus on is is telomere length, but certainly the accumulation accumulation of cells, immune cells that are turning senescent. So there are uh, this is particularly true of of T cells, and so we look for T cells that lose a, a marker that seems to be really important, one called CD twenty eight, and um, another marker that seems to be gained when cells become senescent so it's called a cd57 and so we'll track those over time we'll track how um, t cells change over time um and then there's kind of like if you look at gene expression you know there's lots of different um different pathways that you can begin to to look at and we think that kind of if we you know in a given individual if all of those things seem to add up those are the ones that are put at the 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 highest risk Uh, And and this is not just risk for, um, you know, uh, chronic diseases, but infectious disease, too. So we do, you know, a fair amount of work uh, in the laboratory trying to understand behaviors, particularly, you know, again, I'm interested in sleep that seems to really put people at uh, increased susceptibility for infectious risk. And so one of the ways that we've tested that is actually um, measure people's sleep and then then, uh, expose them to um, a virus. And see if, in fact, they get sick. Uh, another way that we've done this is giving people vaccinations, and so looking at stress or sleep, and seeing that predicts how people respond to these vaccinations. And one of the reason, one of the ways that that uh, seems to matter is if you have more of these aged cells, um, your immune system just doesn't respond as well. And so it's it's part of the story. But you know, with with science, we're kind of always peeling the onion to to try to understand all of the different things that may contribute to our health and well-being.
0: Well, what about the whole cascade of events that cause a cell to act differently? Have you identified the start of the cascade, the end of it, uh, you know, the steps? Um...
1: Well, so we're, we're, you know, we're like a behavioral immunology lab, and so we're kind of always kind of looking at different aspects of it. But because we do things in humans and we do things, um, you know, we're really interested in trying to develop interventions. Uh, our work isn't focused on kind of the the basic science, say in in uh, kind of single cell organisms or of any of those you know those model systems to really get at those types of things. And so what we do is we kind of track the the, the literature um, and are always integrating other various levels of, of of biological assessment to begin to tie those pieces together. And so you know as I mentioned, there's Kind of various, um, you know, genetic processes that seem to be contributing to, you know, for instance, in telomere length, um, you know, we study the enzyme telomerase, which is what is important for uh, putting the telomeres back on, and seems to, you know, play a role in lots of different aspects of of biology. Um, we study the the this uh, so-called longevity hormone called clotho. Um and that seems to be related to kind of inflammation and oxidative damage and, and all of these things. And so, you know, we we really are just trying to collect more and more information. But you know, what you're talking about is kind of this, you know, step-by-step stuff that, that we we don't tend to do just because that's not our area of interest or expertise. We work a lot with basic scientists and immunology labs, but you know, as a psychologist, that really isn't kind of where My uh, plan is, of course, it's really to figure out how we can um, improve some of these things and whether they do, in fact, have a a downstream effect on health.
0: Well, since you're a psychologist, I mean, a psychiatrist, what is the psychology of it? You know, where is that? Where are you looking at that aspect of it?
1: So psychology, right? So I'm I'm trying to understand some of the, the impacts of stress. How do people experience stress? Um, kind of what what emotional processes might drive variation in some of these things um you know as a so i 'm a health a clinical health psychologist, and so I do both clinical work kind of helping people who are under chronic stress as well as treat people with insomnia um, and then uh you know try to develop new interventions and so all of those things can fall under the realm of psychology um, and so you know it 's really about measuring human behavior in a way that helps us gain some insights into kind of the variation that contributes to some of these biological outcomes so that we can do a better job of uh, developing tools uh, for individuals or for policies to kind of improve
0: the, the health and well-being of a population. So, okay, so the stress response is what you study, I guess, you know, lack of sleep, Uh, lack of sleep and then exposure to uh, a virus, that kind of thing, you know, but what are the, I don't know, I guess what are the first steps in the stress response biologically? And, you know, are you studying those and what's happening there? Like how does a stress response turn into, you know, early senescence of cells for instance? Sure.
1: Sure. I mean, so, you know, it, it's certainly complicated, of course, and there's kind of like a wear and tear on the system, Um, you know, in the laboratory, if we actually expose someone to an acute stressor, um, you know, we're able to track kind of, you know, immediate changes in the sympathetic nervous system, as well as, you know, a little delayed uh, responses and say that the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and the output of cortisol. Um, and, and then we're also able to kind of track the dynamics of some of these other biological processes, so kind of um, kind of gene expression. Uh, related to inflammatory genes and the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, and and see what those dynamics look like. And the the notion is that if individuals are exposed to acute stressors over and over and over, and are not recovering appropriately, that that causes a, a wear and tear on the system. And so, you know, we're able to track some of those things um, with the tools that we have. Um, but you know, and and certainly this has been enriched by um, some. You know, work in in uh, um, social neuroscience and and those things where they're able to look in the the brain specifically and and different areas of the brain that may drive sympathetic arousal. We know that um, that you know sympathetic outflows uh, can impact bone marrow and and changes in um, cell distribution that may be uh, as a result. And that's some of the work that we're kind of getting into now uh, more experimentally, but um you know i mean we 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 have these kind of models that we've been working with and uh the tools that are at our disposal for humans are not quite as um you know granular as you could do with say an animal model of, of sorts but um you know that being said there's you know good evidence that you know uh the increased activation of the sympathetic nervous system for instance uh, accounts for uh, some of the at least distribution or functional changes in the immune system in humans, and so we know that because you can do kind of blockade studies, right? You can you can pharmacologically uh, block uh, the sympathetic outflows and see if that removes some of the changes that we see downstream in the immune system. And that's work that was done, you know, now like 30 years ago, but still kind of seminal work uh, to help us understand how how all these things fit together.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, gene expression. Have you seen that um, being uh, exposed to stressors, acute stressors over and over and over? Do you think it changes your gene expression? Do you think it affects you permanently in that way?
1: Uh, I mean, so there are a number of uh, studies now that have looked, um, you know, using kind of microarray or RNA-seq technology uh, where they look at, say, people that are under chronic stress and people that aren't and they do see, you know, fairly consistent patterns where um inflammatory genes are upregulated, uh, genes implicated in uh, viral uh you know protection are downregulated, uh, genes that are related to um kind of uh, cortisol production and and kind of anti-inflammatory processes are also downregulated and so it you know at least in those studies uh it's it's been fairly consistent that it's just an it's it's kind of a tip towards kind of increased inflammation and uh you know a down regulation of things that are thought to be protective that and that's in in some ways why we think that you know people that are under chronic stress uh tend to get these uh chronic inflammatory conditions more readily than um people who aren't and so that's that's i mean that's one way of looking at it um and and whether it's like that forever uh it's it's hard to say those studies are are not done there are very few kind of longitudinal chronic stress uh studies that have used those types of techniques or kind of you know obtained the biology that uh that would help us answer that question um we've done a number of uh different intervention studies uh in chronically stressed caregivers and you know we do sometimes find um that some of these things that we see at the beginning kind of go away in, and potentially the inference would be that it's in response to the intervention. But, you know, those trials are really hard to do well. And it's, it's you know, the honest truth is that um, it's much easier to disrupt the system than it is to improve it. Um, and, and that's that's one of the challenges that, you know, most people find in, in these health psychology studies.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it is. I just wonder if... Um... <clears throat> If you've identified the point at which stress becomes a permanent condition, a permanent effect on the body, and when it's reversible, and the effect well, is mean, reversible. Yeah, no,
1: I mean, I I think you know stress is, is firstly it's it's kind of it's adaptive in a lot of ways, right? So stress acutely, um, you know, can increase motivation. It has important you know effects on metabolism uh, that that are that are uh, you know, critical for survival, right? Like if you didn't have the stress response, you, you, it, we wouldn't survive. Um, the, the problem is that, uh, you know, it's, it's turned on in the wrong times. It's turned on too often. Um, and we think that there's, there's wear and tear. And so, you know, I don't think we have a good sense of kind of what, at what point we, there's no point of return um, biologically. Um, certainly as we age, things get harder because our just system isn't repaired in the same way. And so, um, you know, that's, that's certainly part of it. But, um, you know, I, I think, you know, from a psychological perspective, we're always trying to understand kind of what attributes of an individual seem to create some of these um, kind of ongoing stress responses, right? So one of the things that seems to be uh, problematic for individuals, that are experienced a lot of stressors is are things like um, kind of being someone who ruminates, right that kind of like always relives these um, experiences and that can actually lead to prolonged stress responses. One of the things that is um, you know interesting though that's coming up in the literature uh, more and more is the negative impacts of things like early life adversity or trauma in childhood, where in that instance, for 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 some reasons not well understood yet um those seem to imprint the individual biologically that does carry on and so um it could be that there's this sensitive period there's a lot of people working on kind of trying to understand the epigenetics of of early life adversity um, and so you know that that's an instance where if someone is exposed to something you know in childhood that that does seem to carry on and whether that's because it, it impacts them directly biologically and that's carried forward or, or an alternative is that, you know, that changes the way that people interact with the world and, you know, they're more threat sensitive and they, 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 you know, there's a tendency for people that have experienced early life adversity to view kind of neutral, ambiguous stimuli as uh, threatening. And so if you, if you, if that is the case, then it could be that, you know, that it's ongoing because people are just experiencing, like seeing the world is more stressful. Um, but you know, it's 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 a really interesting time to be doing this work because all this all this literature is is coming out and, and kind of we're gaining more and more biological tools to really see how these things get under the skin.
0: Yeah, and I guess people that are in the military, for instance, are exposed to conflict or things like that even when they're older and develop sure. you know, PTSD. Um perhaps sure. they've changed epigenetically too. And I don't know. Then there's the question of whether these changes are heritable or not. I don't know if you've looked into that, or if there's any literature that talks about it or not. uh, Which which thing being heritable? Like, what do you mean? You know, uh, let's say you're traumatized as a child, and you are a you're a stressed out person. You know, you essentially have PTSD from being abused as a kid, and then Mm -hmm. you have children. You know, your children have they inherited your stressed out uh, way of being. You know, is it heritable? Some of these epigenetic changes. I wonder if there's any literature on that or not. You know
1: yeah that's i mean that's a good that's a really good question it's a i mean there is certainly um some some interest in kind of like transgenerational stress um you know but that that instance that you're talking about it's 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 a it's hard a little hard to pin down only because unless you have kind of a like an adoption study of some sort right that um because you know individuals that are experiencing kind of post traumatic stress um it's possible that they they their behaviors are different in child rearing, for instance, that could lead to kind of variation in anxiety levels and things like that among kids uh but uh i mean it's it's certainly there's some animal data to suggest that um you know stressing a uh a a rodent during, while they are pregnant kind of can certainly kind of impact the disposition and the biological trajectory of the of the the pup. And so, you know, I mean, I think that's that's a really interesting idea that
0: uh, could, could be kind of sussed out a little bit
1: in the literature, I
0: think. Well, what kind of unusual or interesting or strange things have you seen through your research or through your review of the literature? What things really pique your curiosity or you think are fascinating or amazing in regards to stress and aging?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, so like i said the like the work that I do is really kind of at the intersection of of sleep and stress, and so i I do a lot of um work trying to understand kind of that bidirectional relationship and and thinking about you know what you know so often people in in say the stress the the stress field or in the sleep medicine field kind of focus on kind of either the daytime experience or the nighttime experience but of course it's a it's more of a twenty four hour um, it's you know existence and so um, and they're so intimately tied to one another and and provide opportunities for um, kind of studying this these reciprocal processes and um, and uh, you know opportunities for like two different interventions you can treat on you know on individual stress or you can actually treat their their sleep complaints and and you know may get spillover in either direction and so that I find that really exciting and what one thing that we've been really interested in is trying to understand Um, you know, and document the extent to which, um, you know, an individual's lack of sleep changes the way in which they experience the world and actually either select, they select into more stressful experiences or they perceive the world as more stressful and what is the kind of biological cost of that. Um, We certainly are, live in a society where people are getting insufficient sleep Um, and I think all of us have the experience of kind of a day where we're kind of, we get dramatically less sleep and, you know, we may notice things about our, the way we deal with things emotionally or cognitively. And we think that has like an important, uh, you know, effect on how P, how you biologically respond to stressors. And so, um, you know, in, in a study that we just completed, uh, we found that, um, in these high stress mothers and kind of low stress mothers, uh, who were followed over three weeks time and and kind of did, completed a sleep diary and and had their sleep measured uh, objectively using wrist actigraphy, and completed a stress diary every night about kind of what was the thing that was most stressful to you. Um, we found that you know people who got less sleep than they typically did, and it wasn't say um, you know just the short short sleepers that got like you know five hours of sleep or four hours of sleep. It was just you know less than your average. Um, the following day, they were much more likely to Uh, Experience higher levels of stress when they kind of reported on the thing that they found stressful. What was really interesting, though, was that um, these diaries that we had them fill out, these stress diaries, we had individuals kind of write down exactly what it was that was stressful to them. And then we had expert coders kind of, you know, verify that, in fact, the thing that they wrote down would be uh, seen as stressful in the general population that everyone would agree that was stressful or not stressful, and so they were able to kind of group these things into kind of minor hassles and kind of actual real stressors. And what we found was um, that one, it didn't matter if you were a high stress caregiver or a low stress control person, a, a parent, um, of course, is all stressful. That that didn't seem to matter, but it and and the impact of sleep really just seemed to um, Increase people's stress response to low, modest things that sleep didn't seem to be important if you had a real stressor that happened to you. Everybody felt more stressed then, but it was these kind of like minor hassles where people reported higher levels of stress than you would have expected because they got less sleep. And so, you know, it really did speak to this idea that it kind of changes our perspective um, and our perceptions Um, when we get less sleep than we typically do. And so, you know, and the other thing that was really interesting of this is that when people got less sleep, they were more likely to also have more stressful things happen to them the next day when they were coded. So um, with the idea that people, you know, like stress, stressors aren't just randomly distributed. There is some um, kind of tendency for say people to, uh, you know, if they're under periods of less sleep, they are more likely to get into conflicts with people at work or with their their partner, or um you know certainly you can think of like accidents and all those things they're they're considered stressors, and they they happen as a function of of the amount of sleep that an individual is getting and so our next step in this work, since we know that there are some people that have when they have short sleep, they actually um you know experience more stress, they may be more sensitive uh sleep stress sensitive. Um, we're now trying to understand whether they look differently, different biologically. So if this is something that happens a lot, if this is like a trait-like thing for them, do, does it seem to promote some of these um, kind of age-related processes that we think are so important for health? And we're just getting into this data, but it does seem to, uh, to look like to us that you know people that have this happening, this this you know when they get a less sleep, they do feel more stressed. Um, They, you know, if we look at composites of different biological outcomes, they do seem to look worse. And so we're, you know, we're trying to kind of uh, carefully characterize people, but we think, you know, this, this sleep, it's not just about your sleep and it's not just about your stress, but it's about how those things are tied together that um, may put someone on uh, a negative age-related trajectory. And so for me, that's really exciting because it's kind of pulling all
0: these pieces together. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, from what I've experienced, is the better you feel, the better your relationships will be, the better a person you'll be to your husband your wife, your children. If you're, if you feel like crap, of course you're gonna lash out, and you know it's gonna lead to more stressful situations because you you don't feel good. When you don't feel good, you tend to not be a very nice person. So it makes total sense that that would happen, you know. But and I know some people are more predisposed to be stressed out versus not and have things affect them some more more sanguine so all that stuff uh definitely makes sense you know yeah 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 i know i know that's a it's a funny
1: thing that happens with this this uh this type of work that we do um you know people are like like so i you know do all this work on like when when people get too much uh not enough sleep they they end up get sick more right and like you know it's like well didn't we yep. didn't we know that <laughs> but but it turned out that there weren't that much, uh, there wasn't that much empirical data to support those types of ideas, and so you know it's, it requires this kind of careful um, assessment to really um, kind of drive home, you know, uh, the the point, but also um, to affect policy, right? I mean, you need the the actual empirical evidence to make changes um, in some of the the things that that we do, and so you know
0: that's that's why we do this work. Well, any surprises? Yeah. You know, does it does it only take a very small amount of sleep disruption to you know to really get sick a lot easier than before or you know I mean what what surprises have lay in these you know the things people could say are obvious and you're right now we have empirical data to back it up but what what were some of the things again that were really surprising to you?
1: You know I'm I guess I'm always surprised that it the findings are so consistent. You know I mean it's 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 one of those things that like it's one of the things that's been so surprising to me that in all the studies that we've done, we met, you know, when we measure sleep, for instance, we, we measure lots of different aspects of sleep. Like we measure people's you know, subjective quality, we measure kind of how fragmented it is, how long it takes people to go to sleep, how many times they wake up. Um, and then we measure like how much sleep they actually get, the duration. Um, and no matter in any instance, it's always the amount that they get. Um, and that's not to say that how fragmented it is doesn't matter because it does sometimes, but more often than not, it's the amount that they get. And then when we look at kind of what that, like, what that looks like, like how much is, is enough, it's always around seven hours, but if people get at least seven hours of sleep, um, they tend to be fine. What's interesting is that, you know, um, we're learning, you know, I, I work with some geneticists here at u c s f and you know we're we're starting to understand some of the genes around kind of sleep need and um, people that are um, you know habitual short sleepers where they need very little sleep and how how that's genetically driven and so the hope is that we can begin to kind of at the at the right level of scale try to understand some of those things um, and so that it's not always the case that um, you know people need seven hours but but it is just so consistent and, you know, although that is not the, the most flashy answer, it is certainly something that has surprised me every time.
0: Okay. Well, very good. Well, Eric, what's the best way for folks to learn more and to see more of the specifics on what you're working on and to get in touch?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always uh, welcome for uh, people to, to contact me and so you can certainly do that from the UCSF website or you can follow me at Eric Prather on Twitter, or um, yeah, just look me up, A-R-I-C, P-R-A-T-H-E-R.
0: That's great, Eric, thank you for coming, I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course, thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain,